WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. The midterm elections now just a few days away and folks, a lot is on the line. The biggest race, the U.S. Senate race between Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley. Also on the ballot, congressional races across the Carolinas, including that new seat that North Carolina gained during the U.S. Census. It covers southern Mecklenburg County and Gaston County. You also have state legislative races. Who we send to Raleigh? Often overlooked, but state lawmakers impact your child's education, how you're able to vote, and access to abortion. Not to mention county commissioners also on the ballot. Lots of judge races and bonds. Joining us now, some of the smartest folks I know when it comes to this midterm election, Susan Roberts, professor at Davidson, and Scott Huffman, professor of Winthrop. Thank you both for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, Susan, I'll begin with you, and I'm, I'm going to ask the same question, Scott, of you. Um, size up this Senate race here in North Carolina, Beasley versus Bud. Well, one of the things that strikes me is kind of with informal, with friends, they're all astounded at why this race isn't the most competitive, the one that's going to tilt the balance uh, for the U.S. Senate. And um, it's just not where the money is. And I think North Carolina, the parties, uh, the Democratic Party said, we've invested a lot the last three elections and we've gotten nothing out of it. And so I think that's kind of the general ambiance. And I've seen very different figures. I don't know what I thought. Uh, Sherry Beasley was behind by one. And then I thought, <laughs> I heard that it was like a seven point lead for Bud and it's gone back and forth. And so I don't know who to believe in that one. All I can say is, I think it's going to be very tight. Scott, how, how do you size this one up? Uh, Susan's right, it is tight. Um, but Republicans have a bit of an advantage in likely voter turnout. If you look at the polls among registered voters, it's a dead heat but Republicans are just a hair more likely to turn out. So when you look at the models that take that into account, then Bud has a, an edge by a few points. And, and many of the polls that are comparing simply registered voters to likely voters, his edge is just outside the margin of error. So that means Beasley has to play catch up, even though she's done an amazing amount of fundraising. And as, May I add know, one thing to that, uh, Ben? Um, I'm amazed that Ted Budd has some ads that are so negative about child predators that I looked to see if they were from super PACs and no, indeed, they were from Ted Budd himself, which is kind of extraordinary. And the ads from the outside races, uh, I mean, from, from outside money is, is starting to flood the, the state as well. And that's a bit of a, a surprise because as Susan pointed out, we expected more money from the national level to flow in on Cherry Beasley's size, side, and she's had to, to you know, front the money of her own. Um, I, it really looked like North Carolina might be in play for a pickup for the Democrats, but they, as Susan pointed out, they haven't looked at it that way, and they have reserved their money so far. And why do we think that is? They were burned by Cal Cunningham and some of the other Democrats who've run for U.S. Senate uh, in the last uh, few cycles? I think part of it is they were thinking that Sherry Beasley was going to get a, a lot of outside money from Emily's List, from a group Higher Heights that funds Democratic women running for higher office, and um, it just hadn't materialized. Plus, she said she wasn't going to take corporate PAC money. And so um, I think it just slipped when other races became um, much more high visibility. It, part of it is curious to me why the party didn't invest more. Scott, what does this mean for the overall U.S. Senate? The balance right now um, with with Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker leans Democrat by one. 
Um, where does it stand come Wednesday? Well, you know, a lot is actually going to hinge on Pennsylvania. If the Democrats can uh, pick up Pennsylvania, then all of a sudden the Republicans' path to control of the Senate gets more narrow. But if the Republicans, if Dr. Oz picks up Pennsylvania, then all of a sudden the Republicans have several paths that they're going to be able to to take to control the Senate. Several of the races, whether you're looking at Nevada or Wisconsin, every poll has them as a toss-up. And there are several paths to Republicans taking control and a handful of paths for Republic for Democrats retaining control. So it's going to hinge on races such as Pennsylvania. Um, you know, North Carolina, if we assume that it stays in Republican hands, then that becomes even more important to see what the Democrats can do in Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Susan, where do you think we stand Wednesday? Well, I'm, I'm really, right now, I'm not looking at the polls about who's ahead or who's behind. I'm looking at the turnout numbers. And I think Wednesday, we're going to see um, a large turnout. I think we're going to see, you know, the, the college student turnout. Wait till the last minute. And that might be the people, the group that is going to, to vote more on access to abortion, because that really hasn't materialized. And I think um, Wednesday morning, we're not going to know where the Senate is, because I think Pennsylvania doesn't start counting um, uh, absentee ballots until the day of the election. And, um, you know, they were the ones, I think the last ones that declared, uh, you know, Biden the winner. So I think Wednesday, there might be many people that wake up and think the Republicans who were showing up on election day, you know, swept. Um, that won't be the case. But I think um, there'll be some good indications about control of the House and control of the Senate. That's what I would say you need to look for. Let's, let's talk about some of those House races. Uh, there's the con Congressional District 14 here. It's the new one that was created by uh, the new census numbers, gave us an extra seat here. Jeff Jackson, Pat Harrigan. Um, in what is a seat and a district that probably will not exist in a year ago because of redistricting and, and we never seem to settle on, on district lines here in, in North Carolina. Uh, what are the challenges that those two candidates have faced? Susan, I'll start with you. Well, I think one of the challenges, at least initially, which I think is has faded, and that is that Bo Hines was kind of district shopping and trying to say, where will I play? And that really is, I don't think, you know, everybody wants an R or D by their name. I think that one is tightening. Do I think that um, it's going to go to um, Harrigan? I don't think so. But it's. I think it's gone from, as Cook had it, a plus five Democrat to maybe a plus three Democrat. And there's been some very aggressive um, ads by Harrigan at the last minute. And at the last minute means for the people who haven't made up their mind, for the people that aren't strong partisans. So I think you're going to see the race tighten. I think Jackson is going to win. Susan, you mentioned uh, Bo Hines. He ended up running in the 13th district against uh, Wiley Nickel, which is really the excuse me, yeah. really, really the only sort of uh, battleground district, it seems like, in North Carolina that's really, really neck and neck. Uh, how, how do you see that race shaping up over near Raleigh? Yeah, sorry I made a mistake on that. I think that race is um, still going to be competitive, but I think people are looking and saying, where do I vote? How do I vote? Do I have ID? I think North Carolina is a very confusing state. Coming up, our conversation with Susan Roberts and Scott Huffman continues. Next, we'll discuss how the issues, everything from the economy and inflation to abortion, are playing into this year's election.
Welcome back to Flashpoint. We continue our conversation with Professor Susan Roberts and Scott Huffman. All right, Scott, how do you feel like uh, talking about issues now, how inflation will end up playing into this? All these races. Inflation is still kind of overarching above all of these races. Uh, we thought that abortion was going to be, you know, far more important, the thing that's most talked about. And it seems that, you know, in the media and us talking heads, we do seem to, to wonder how much turnout, especially among moderate women, the issue of abortion is, is going to be driving after the Dobbs decision. But when voters are, are uh, answering polls, when they say, what is what are the most important issues? It is still inflation and it is still the economy. And it's not just how it hits their pocketbooks. Um, most voters are sociotropic voters, meaning they look at sort of how it hits everybody, even if their pocketbook is feeling safe. And as long as we have inflation and it looks like the Fed is hiking interest rates again, people are going to feel that economically, then that is going to remain the overarching issue. I don't see anything changing in the next week, although I do expect Democrats to put out a big push about the abortion issue to try and spur turnout uh, in Democratic districts nationally. Well, and may I take a shot at that? I think the um, one of the differences is uh, Kavanaugh, the confirmation occurred in October, October the 6th, and the leak and Dobbs came out in, um, in June. And I think the Democrats have said they've maybe peaked too soon. And that's something that I think that for many people, we have seen that kind of subside. You can't, you know, abortion is more long term and the price you pay at the pump and in the, for groceries is immediate. And that's why I think one of the reasons it's been displaced and all the play, all the things that have, you know, been done to try to get it back in the headlines don't seem to have worked. But the Democrats, I think I read that they spent half of their money in October um, on ads uh, talking about access to abortion and um is that messaging one that can get them a victory? I'm I'm hesitant to say that it will. What do you think it is? Is it I mean it's just that that we as Americans and, and, and voters have notoriously short attention spans? Well, I think part of it is, I mean, there's some long-term attention span in terms of um, the Siena, New York Times Siena poll that said, you know, people are having threat to democracy as um, their number two issue. Now, that's long-term, but also, you know, I read that, yes, it's a, you know, they see it as a priority, but they're not going to use it to in their calculus to cast a vote. Scott, she mentioned threat to, uh, to democracy. Um, there's a lot more at stake here than just conservative versus uh, liberal uh, in this race. As somebody uh, who studies this, um, I, I don't want to be alarmist, but, but how do you size up this election um, and what happens after Tuesday? Well, one of the things that, that's going to happen, I think, is no matter who ends up with control of uh, Congress, the lame duck Congress, is controlled by Democrats, is going to pass the act that will protect the um, the count on the next January 6, 2025. So the real issue, instead of there being another January 6, 2025, it'll actually be in December. And if there's going to be attempts to usurp the, the vote, it's going to come in all 50 states when the electoral college votes are tallied in the states. So I think we're actually going to face something strategically different for the 2024 election and something different on January 6, 2025. I think the um, 
potential attacks on democracy will come in December in the states where those electoral college tallies are taking place. And that is going to, you know, the question is, will that be sort of protected by the incoming Congress if it's Republican controlled? How did we get to this point of, of, of the situation you all have just laid out for us um, compared to a few years ago arguing about just the simple size of government? Well, I think there's been a um, steady decline in trust in government, and there's been um, really uh, more focus placed on how do you think the country's doing? And I think that that's been looking, um, people are really saying the country's not doing very well. Um, that doesn't have to be framed or primed. I think they know if the economy's going well, Biden faces low approval. It's not quite the same thing as the Trump um, initial Trump approval, but they're along the same lines. And um, I think it's really just trusting the government, trust institutions, um, feeling um, as if people listen to you. That's still out there. Uh, the the really one of the impetuses behind Trump's victory. So I think some of it is past elections, trust in institutions, the direction of the country, and. Um, uh, do you think, do you want the Democrats to be in control, that generic ballot? And that's really swung more from the Democrats to the Republicans. I think Susan's absolutely right. The one thing I would add to that is that all of those things have caused the polarization to get that much worse. And not only is trust in government down, as Susan pointed out, belief that the other side is actively undermining the country. Both sides now look at the opposite side, not just as someone with different ideas, but as an enemy and as an existential threat. And to the degree that you think the other side threatens the very existence of the country, then you're going to be willing to, to push as hard as it takes to make sure your side wins because the other side isn't just wrong in your mind, they're evil. And to the degree that we have that level of polarization among some folks, and we do, uh, it, we're just going to see this type of venomous politics uh, continue. Final question, what's the solution to that? <laughs> Scott, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody talks about can we have a, a third party of moderates come up? And there is a built in part of the Constitution, um, and this is called Duvarge's Law, that the way our system is designed, the way our founders designed the system, it accidentally, and it is an accident, always results in a two party system. So our system is inherently biased against a third party coming up. So the idea that some moderates are going to, to come in and be able to rise up and take over, that's not how things are, are gonna work. Um, I think we are in a pendulum swing right now I think it may get worse before it gets better, but there's always the hope that the pendulum will swing back and the coalitions that make up the party will begin shifting. And that's where we're gonna have hope for the future, but not the soon future. Yes, and I think that, you know, there's leadership from the top and there's rhetoric from the top. And unfortunately, I think Joe Biden made, President Biden made a speech about the danger of MAGA. And then he turned around and made a speech about you know, let's get together, let's speak with one voice about the future of democracy. And I'm not sure that that's going to be a message that is going to resonate in this election um, and maybe not. I can't see it changing in 2024. All right, Susan Roberts, Scott Huffman, uh, thank you both. We'll get the latest from Washington, D.C. coming up right after this on Flashpoint.
Welcome back to Flashpoint. We continue to talk about the critical races as we are now just days away from the election. Now this election won't just play out here in the Carolinas. Races across the country will help determine control of Congress. NBC News national political correspondent Steve Kornacki is with us outside the Capitol to break down the key states that will help determine the control of the U.S. Senate. All right, let's take a look at the Senate battleground here. You see it right behind me now. Remember, the Senate, of course, it's 50-50 right now. Democrats do control it because the vice president casts the tie-breaking vote. The vice president is Democrat Kamala Harris. So if Republicans are going to get control of the U.S. Senate, they need a net gain of one seat. So you take a look at this map. The blue seats right now are Democratic-held, but they're the five most vulnerable Democratic-held seats. Republicans are going to have to pick up at least one of these if they're going to get the Senate. If you looked at the polling right now, the best chance for Republicans might be in Nevada. There's a new poll out that has it at 47-47 in Nevada. That's where Catherine Cortez Masto is the Democratic incumbent. Republicans also with a chance in Georgia. Herschel Walker is running against Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent there. But Republicans have got to win at least one of those blue states. So let's say they do. If they don't, Democrats control the Senate. They keep their control of the Senate. But if they do, if Republicans pick off one, let's say they get Nevada, then Democrats, you look at those five red seats there, those are the five most vulnerable Republican-held seats. And if Republicans get one of the Democratic ones, Democrats have to counter with one of the Republican-held seats. And there's one state there for Democrats that looms above all the others just in terms of being a ripe target. It's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey, the senator, represents it now, but he's retiring. It's John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz. It's a state Joe Biden carried in 2020. And the polling basically all year has continued to show Fetterman ahead. There's a lot of a wild card because of his health condition. The debate that was held last week, we haven't fully gotten a measurement of what impact that will or won't have. But Pennsylvania, if Democrats are going to need a seat, by far of all those red seats, the one they have the best shot at is Pennsylvania. It could be essential for them. Steve, thanks. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Election officials warning of misinformation during this election season. Now, one organization is apologizing after sending incorrect information to voters in five states, including right here in North Carolina. The messages sent on behalf of Latino and black organizations with those groups already facing obstacles. WCNC Charlotte's Chloe Leshner has more now on how some groups are especially concerned right now. Out of the 7.4 million registered voters in North Carolina, 3.5% identify as Hispanic. It's a growing population. North Carolina, for example, we're expecting over 100,000 Latino voters to cast their ballots uh, this year. Um, that represents essentially a 100% increase from back in 2014. Um, so we've seen a huge increase in, in, our, uh, in our power, really, when it comes and our influence when it comes to elections. Julio Rivera with the Naleo Educational Fund says new polling shows mis- and disinformation about the elections are spreading throughout the Latino community. It could be a threat to voter turnout. Our main concern is disinformation, misinformation that may confuse voters about the elections processes itself um, that really calls into question the security, um, the how, when, and where to vote. This week, text messages with incorrect information were sent on behalf of Voto Latino, Black Votes Matter, and Voting Futures. The messages were sent to about 12,000 North Carolinians and led some to believe their polling place on Election Day was changed. 
In a statement, Movement Labs, the company responsible for sending the texts, said in part they, quote, fell short of our rigorous standards with some of these errors. State elections officials say it's not the only example this election cycle and urge people to double check what they hear. Any voter, any member of the public should be very careful about clicking on links or trusting what they've received through social media or through a text message. Uh, make sure to just go to those trusted sources of information. And when it comes to elections, that's the state board of elections or your county board of elections. Chloe Lushner, WCNC Charlotte. So bottom line, be skeptical about what you see on social media. Folks, come interact with us. Speaking of on social media, we're always reliable here at WCNC Charlotte. If there's something you want us to cover on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. Go vote on Tuesday and we'll see you back here next week.